Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with, still with you, I told you this? And do you know what is restraining him now, so that, he, so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth, and destroy him by his appearing and his coming. The coming of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with all power and with pretended signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are to perish, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends upon them a strong delusion to make them believe what is false, so that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The longer you meditate on the writings of the Apostle Paul, the more deeply you become convinced that all genuine and deep spiritual subjective experience depends upon genuine, deep, objective, biblical knowledge. I mean things like faith and love and peace and joy. These precious inward subjective experiences depend upon the mind's apprehension of objective biblical truth. From the biblical standpoint, I think it would be right to say that studying and thinking and knowing are never ends in themselves. They're always in the service of feeling and willing and doing. You might say that in, biblical, in the biblical framework, the mind is the servant of the heart. Knowing is for the sake of Loving and all theology that is worth its salt produces doxology. And we saw this principle last week so clearly in Paul's dealing with the subjective, painful issue of suffering in the church at Thessalonica. Let me just review for you chapter 1 and what we saw. The church at Thessalonica was being persecuted and Paul, with an attempt to enable them to profit from this subjectively as much as he could with growing faith and growing love, interpreted it for them. He said in verse 5 that this is a sign of God's righteous judgment. 
Well, now that is an awesome thing to say to a suffering people. And he didn't leave it at that. He granted them three further arguments to support the truth that the suffering they were experiencing was a sign of God's righteous judgment. Number one, he said it is righteous of God to ordain the persecution of wicked men as part of his just judgment because in doing this, he is preparing his people to be fit for the kingdom. That's verse 5. Secondly, he said that it is just because those who are persecuting them will get their comeuppance in the end. Those who are afflicting will become the afflicted. Evil will not continue prospering. And then thirdly, he said in verse 7 of chapter 1, those who are afflicted will be granted rest, reward, at the coming of the Lord Jesus in power and great glory. So now, do you see how Paul deals with the problem of subjective doubt and fear and discouragement under persecution? He says, I will show you the ways of God. I will interpret for you what's happening to you. I will give knowledge to your minds so that you can handle in your hearts the experience of suffering. That's the way God does it. He says that their hearts and their bodies will be able to handle the miseries of suffering if he can but convince their heads about the meaning of suffering. And therefore, at Bethlehem, and in my own experience, I strive against the division of heart and head experience and thought, learning and feeling. Because if we let these things be ripped asunder, we rip Scripture asunder. Now today the same principle is manifest in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And to see the practical, subjective, experiential problem that Paul is engaging to try to solve, we'll read verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering or our assembling to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now what is Paul's aim here? His aim is that the Thessalonians not be Shaken. That means, I think, that they not lose their head, that they not be thrown off balance, lose their equilibrium, that they be calm and composed and clear thinking and not uh, discombobulated by the upheaval of the world around them. And then, secondly, he said his aim is that they not be excited. I think in the sense of being disturbed or alarmed or frightened. This word here is the same word Jesus used in Mark 13, 7, when he said, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This 
must take place. The end is not yet. So Jesus takes the word right out of that context, uses it in a very similar context here. So what is his overarching goal in writing? It's heart work. He doesn't want Christians to be insecure, unstable, knocked around, ready to lose their balance, lacking composure. He wants calm, stable, composed, deeply rooted, firm believers when the world is going haywire. So how does he aim to accomplish this very personal, subjective, experiential heart purpose? Well, he answers that for us in verse 3. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. Paul is persuaded, in other words, that behind every shakenness in emotions, behind every undue excitement, behind every disturbance on the sea of our emotions, there is a deeply rooted deceit. Deceit is what lies behind emotional disturbance. And it might even be a totally unconscious deceit bred into us somewhere along the way. Somewhere deep down, a belief that is not true. And so his first way of attacking the instability, the shakenness, the excitement of these Christians is to say, don't be deceived, and then to take up a perfectly suited biblical tool and to begin to dislodge the roots of this deceit in the minds of the Thessalonians. Now, I want to pause here and just ask, do you tend the garden of your emotions like this? Is this your pattern of tending the garden of your emotions? That is, when you discover some alien fruit of fear or desire growing on some strange plant in the life of your emotions, is it your strategy with the apostles to immerse yourself in Scripture day and night until you hit upon by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit that perfectly tailored tool inspired by God to dig in, dislodge the root of the deceit that lay behind that disturbance and pluck it out and throw it away. Is that the way you deal and tend the garden of your emotions. I commend it to you. It is the biblical pattern throughout. Behind every emotional disturbance is a lie that has taken root in our soul, perhaps even unconscious. Remember, the Lord said, unlike all human wisdom, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing 
to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and we could add root and rock and deceit and truth so that all plants and alien fruit can be plucked out by the Word of God and we're free to form new emotional habits. Let no one deceive you, Paul says, in any way. And then come ten verses of teaching designed to dislodge the deceit from the minds of the Thessalonians that they have fallen prey to, or at least begun to fall prey to. And so before we can look at these ten verses of how Paul attempts to dislodge the deceit, we have to decide what the deceit is. So let's read it here in verse 2. He says that they have been starting to believe the day of the Lord has already come. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us, to the effect, here's the deceit, that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, evidently, they were beginning to think Christ's coming is so close, it's just over the horizon. And they had gone haywire in their community. We'll see next week, some of them had quit their jobs and were being idle and mooching off the other hard workers. And Paul got very angry at this and said, if a man won't work, let him not eat. That's the way he dealt with this eschatological error. We'll talk about that next week. Paul responds in the most amazing way here. He says, I don't care if it came in a letter with my name on it. I don't care if it came in a sermon from one of your elders. And I don't care if it came in a prophecy from a spirit. It's a lie. Christ, the day of the Lord, has not come. Now that's the deceit he must dislodge from their minds. How will he do it? Well, he says in verse 3, that day will not come unless the rebellion or the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. In other words, he says, look, there are two things that have to happen before the day of the Lord and neither of them has happened. Apostasy and the man of lawlessness has to be revealed. You can know the day of the Lord isn't here because you can look around and you don't see the man of sin and the apostasy has not near reached the level that it will reach before the coming of the Lord. Now tonight, I want to deal with the question that is on most of your minds if you have any exposure to biblical teaching at all concerning the end times, where does the rapture fit in here? And I'll take it up in, in great detail tonight. In fact, I'm, I'm shifting gears from what's in the bulletin. I'm going to spend the whole evening on this issue because we can only touch on it this morning. Let me describe for you the issue because I know that many of you have grown up in churches where this wasn't even talked about, though those of you who've grown up in evangelical churches know much about this. There is a view that is very widespread 
in the evangelical church concerning the end times that pictures the second coming divided into two events. The first event is called the rapture or the appearing of Christ in which Christ descends, the church rises to meet him in the air, and he gathers this church and takes them back to heaven during a seven-year period of tribulation upon the earth. And then the second half of the second coming He descends with his saints in power and great glory and establishes his kingdom on the earth, and that ushers in the millennium. That's called pre-tribulationism. And it is proper, uh, popular because it was displayed in the Schofield Reference Bible for decades now in the notes in many Bible schools and a few seminaries, and of course in hundreds of popular books, the most popular of which was Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. It has begotten songs and movies and dramas that picture the departure of saints out of the earth and the leaving behind of all unbelievers. And tonight I want to try to make plain from Scripture why I cannot follow this interpretation and why, since the time I first began to study it on my own in college, it has never commended itself to me as biblical. I have not been able to find it in Scripture anywhere. And I know, I'm talking now from experience in the first service, and the feedback I got. I know that it is the stock-in-trade view for 90% of you. I don't know that, but I suspect it. It's what you inherited. It's what I inherited. My father believes it with all his heart. I will bring a raft of correspondence with me tonight of how we've written to each other on this issue. And so let me just preface One argument that I'm going to present this morning for why I don't believe this is biblical with this overarching attitude towards the controversy. I do not expect everybody will agree with me, nor do I expect there will ever be a church split here because of this disagreement. I'm going to list for you tonight the things that we do agree on if you're a pre-tribulationist, and I'm not. Because they are magnificent things, vastly more important than the difference in timing that we're going to be talking about tonight. And there is absolutely no warrant for evangelicals to split fellowship over this issue. And I have the highest regard and respect for godly people who do not agree with me on this issue. And I hope that helps you cope emotionally with what I'm about to say. I am a, what's called, post-tribulationist. I'll try to explain these terms tonight, because I know many of you, this is all just jargon that doesn't mean anything. One young woman came up afterwards and she said, look, I grew up in the Catholic Church and I don't know what millennium means, I don't know what tribulation means, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I'll try to just start from ground zero tonight with definitions and drawings and 
see what we can do. But, in a word, my anticipation is that one great and glorious event is on the way. Christ is going to come. We will rise to meet Him in the air, usher Him in. He will establish His kingdom, grant rest to His people, vengeance upon the unbelievers, establish His millennial kingdom, and reign upon the earth in glory. Now, that's a glorious expectation. But I don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that takes the church out of the world seven years before that. Now, why? Well, there are many reasons, and I don't have time to tell you all of them, but here we are in 2 Thessalonians 1, I mean 2. And so I will show you why this chapter has stood a, like a great roadblock in the way of my embracing the view of pre-tribulationism. The Thessalonians are shaken and alarmed. They think that the day of the Lord is here, is virtually at hand. Now, pre-tribulationists all believe that the day of the Lord, that phrase refers to the second half of the second coming, in glory and power. It's described in verse 8. They would say, and I would say, and then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by his appearing and his coming. Everybody agrees that's the final decisive descent of the Lord in power and fire and vengeance and glory. So the day of the Lord is not the rapture, according to pre-tribulationists. It's not that quiet event by which the church is snatched out of the world. Now, the question then that rises in my mind is, if the Thessalonians were overly excited and shaken, thinking that the day of the Lord had come, why didn't Paul just say, verse 3, it can't have come, I'm still here, and you're still here. He said, what, what he says is, you, you know, the day of the Lord has not come because the apostasy has not come and the man of lawlessness has not been revealed. Now, let's think about this man of lawlessness from the standpoint of pre-tribulationism for a moment. All pre-tribulationists agree that the man of lawlessness will be revealed after the rapture. And they believe that rightly on their terms from verses 6 and 7 because something is restraining the man of lawlessness. You see that? There is a restrainer. If you ask a pre-tribulationist, what's the restrainer? What is keeping back the man of lawlessness so that he can't appear? They all answer the same thing. And it's a good answer, probably. The Holy Spirit in the church so that when the church is taken out of the way, the man of lawlessness is revealed. And all restraint is gone. That's standard, universal, pre-tribulation teaching. No surprise to anybody. The church raptured out of the world, the Holy Spirit, in that sense, gone, releases the man of lawlessness to appear. In other words, the church will not be here, according to pre-tribulational teaching, when the man of lawlessness appears. The, the Thessalonian Christians will not see the appearance of the lawless one. 
Now, why then would Paul try to convince them that the day of the Lord has not come by pointing to the appearance of one that they'll never see in his appearing? They'll see him slain at the end when they return on pre-tribulational grounds. But they'll be gone when he appears. Why then does Paul choose to support his contention that the day of the Lord isn't here by saying, you don't see the man of lawlessness, do you? Why does he answer with the exact way a post-tribulationist would answer? Namely, you can know the day of the Lord isn't here because two prerequisites of his coming have not appeared for you to see and assess the apostasy and the appearing of the man of lawlessness. You haven't seen him, therefore the day of the Lord is not here. That's the way a post-tribulationist talks, not the way a pre-tribulationist talks. And then Paul goes on in verses 4 through 9, and he describes in some detail the appearing of the man of lawlessness. And the point of this passage, I think, is not that Christians are going to be going to heaven when this man appears, but that they're supposed to recognize him when he comes. That's, that's just the plain, ordinary sense of this chapter when you read it through. So my own conviction this morning is that I would dishonor the word of God and I would do you a great disservice, even those of you who disagree with me, if I did not lay out for you from this chapter, as much as I can, a description of the man of lawlessness, so that should he appear in our generation, which is entirely possible, you will know it and recognize him and not be swept away in the apostasy which he will bring to a climax. All right, let's look at them quickly. There are six features about this, com this man's coming that I want to, to show you. Verse 3, his name, first of all is man of lawlessness. Some of your texts, I know, the King James has man of sin. There's a textual disagreement there. There's not much difference, I don't think. What we can draw out of that is he is a person, an individual, and his whole being and character is rebellious against the law of God. He oozes rebellion against biblical truth. Second, verse 3, he's a son of perdition which simply means that just as his character oozes rebellion, his destiny oozes destruction. He is going to be destroyed as naturally as his nature is rebellious. He is a son of perdition. Third, verse 4, the man of lawlessness will oppose God. He'll oppose all objects of worship except himself. He will put himself forward, the verse says, and exalt himself and as a means to that end so that people will acknowledge him as the sole rightful uh, object of veneration. He will plant himself in the temple of God. Now, what does that mean? Two possibilities, I think, commend themselves. One, the church. Paul three times calls the church the temple of God. So perhaps he means there will come a kind of world church leader who will be at the peak of some world church. Another possibility is that it means the temple in Jerusalem. I'm open to the possibility that through some kind of Jewish resurgence at the end of the age, which I believe in, there could be a rebuilt temple. I don't think the pre-tribulationists are the only people that 
might believe that. But I'm not sure which of those two is accurate. Be alert for both possibilities. Fourth, in verses 6 and 7, the man of lawlessness is being restrained for his appointed time. Now, the lesson I draw out of that is that he's not in control. God's in control. He has a time appointed. It will be very short, and then he will be slain by the breath of the Lord Jesus. In fact, there hardly seems to be any time elapsed between his rise and his slaying. It will not be a long period. And he's being restrained. Now, who's the, who's the restrainer? I don't know. Some people say the Holy Spirit, whether in the church or not in the church. Some people say it is a good law and order government. So that as long as there's law and order in the world, a man of lawlessness can't make his way to the fore. And so when there's anarchy and everything collapses, then he'll appear. My point is, I don't know. And it seems to me that as you read all the commentaries, they just argue and disagree. And I haven't been able to settle myself. And so the, the important thing that is sure is this, who or whatever is restraining the man of lawlessness, behind that is God. The hand and power of God. Because it's so clear from Acts 1.8 that the times and the seasons are appointed by the Father. The man of lawlessness will be restrained precisely as long as God appoints for him to be restrained, and then he will be granted his little space of time and slain. Finally, Number six from verse nine, the man of lawlessness is not Satan, but he comes, it says, in the power and the energy of Satan with signs and wonders. Now, there's a warning here, I think, that's very important, and it's this. Signs and wonders should never be the ground of your faith or the criterion of truth. Signs and wonders should never be the ground of your faith or the criterion of truth. Because when this man of lawlessness comes, he will have satanic power and will do miracles. They're called pretended or counterfeit or lying, not because they're not supernatural, but because they're in the service of a lie. They will support lying claims. He will claim for himself things that are not true. Then he will do miracles. And the apostasy will come to climax as professing believers stream to his allegiance who did not love the truth because they were fascinated by signs and wonders. So Paul's first tool of truth for digging up roots of deceit in the minds of the Thessalonians is the teaching that before the day of the Lord comes, a man of lawlessness must appear. And surely he intends for them to be alert for this and to recognize him when he comes and to protect themselves from his deceitfulness. He's not writing to a church that's going to be gone when this man appears. Secondly, Paul says the apostasy must come first. You see that in verse 3? First, there must be a rebellion or an apostasy or a falling away. That means, apostasy means people who once espoused the truth fall away from it and go into unbelief and into untruth. And I think what Paul is doing at this point is simply quoting in different words what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24. Listen, and then many will fall away 
and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness is multiplied, that's the same word that the Lord uses, and because lawlessness is multiplied, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, that's a remarkable parallel, isn't it? Look at the links. Paul says in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Jesus says, lawlessness will be multiplied in those days. Paul says in verse 3, there's coming a great apostasy. And Jesus says, the love of many will grow cold. But those who endure to the end, which simply means those who don't apostatize, those of you in this room who don't fall away and go after lying wonders, but endure to the end. You will be saved. Others will not. That's what he's warning against here. That's what the apostasy will look like. Many professing Christians going out after the man of sin and his pretended signs and wonders. The apostasy comes to a crushing climax in verses 9 to 12. It is just almost impossible to exaggerate the horror of these verses as delusion grips the world and God himself supports the delusion. It is a terrifying verse that God himself gives up professing believers into delusion and confirms them in their hardness of heart. These will be terrible days. And what a warning is here to us. A warning to what? Why will professing believers apostatize in this day? Paul answers that at the end of verse 10, doesn't he? He says they're perishing because they do not love the truth. Or literally, it says, because they did not welcome a love for the truth. Now notice very carefully, the issue is not one of knowing or merely believing in a mental sense. The issue of, is one of loving Loving the truth. This is brought out again in verse 12 at the end. So that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now notice, did not believe but had pleasure in... Isn't that an interesting contrast? You know what that teaches us? It teaches us that saving faith that endures to the end and does not apostatize includes delight in the truth, pleasure in the truth. You can be sure that when the man of lawlessness comes and does his signs and wonders, they will stand in the service of claims that appeal to your natural desires. Let me say that again. When the man of lawlessness comes, his, his wonders and his miracles will serve claims coming out of his mouth which appeal to your desires. Mark it, it will be a health, wealth, and prosperity message that the man of lawlessness preaches. Now, the point here is, how will anyone be protected from his love growing cold and going away after this appealing message and this miraculous confirmation of the message. And the only answer is not a head truth, not a tradition, not having attended Bethlehem, 
One thing will protect you. Have you loved the truth? I don't mean believe it and affirm it and sign statements and walk aisles and make decisions. I mean love, love, love the truth. Is Christ your portion? Is He your treasure? Does He satisfy the longings of your heart so that you don't commit adultery and don't fall into lust and don't give yourself to alcohol and don't love money? Does He satisfy your heart? Do you love the glory of the gospel? If not, you are sitting prey for the man of lawlessness and for the mystery of lawlessness that is already at work in the world, snatching inauthentic Christians out of the church. I want us to close with some prayer and dedication. And would you stand with me in a moment of silence? Before I close in prayer, I would just ask you not to focus on the controversy that I raised earlier, but simply on the the issue of the end of this text about how easy it is to fall prey and perish when we don't love the truth. And would you just in this moment rededicate yourself to love the truth of Scripture, to love the truth of the gospel to love the one who said, I am the truth. And then pray that God would grant you the love of the truth. And then avail yourself of the means of grace like scripture and prayer and fellowship and good books that kindle a love for the truth. Let's make some significant resolutions right now with the Lord. And now may God count you Worthy of your calling to his great kingdom and fulfill in you every desire for goodness and every work of faith that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you and you in him at his appearing according to the grace of our God and of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.